and welcome to the podcast. I'm Jan Orman. I'm a GP with a special interest in mental health and I work for the Black Dog Institute and the eMental Health in Practice Project devising and delivering educational programs about mental health for health professionals. My clinical colleagues and I are noticing an increasing need for mental health support for anxious teenagers at the moment. This podcast is a distillation of the important information we shared in a webinar recently about helping teenagers manage their anxiety, with a special emphasis on online resources. My guests on the webinar were Dr Sarah Barker, a clinical psychologist in Melbourne with a special interest in adolescent mental health, Dr Karen Spielman, GP lead at the Bondi Junction Headspace Clinic in Sydney, and Kay Rogers, a clinical psychologist based in Melbourne. In this presentation, we talk about the prevalence of anxiety disorders in adolescence, how to distinguish normal levels of anxiety from anxiety that warrants intervention, the kinds of interventions that are appropriate, and how we can use online resources to augment our therapy endeavours. Is it very common for teenagers to have anxiety? It is. So so we know that uh, rates of mental health are increasing for young people in Australia, and that anxiety is a really big one. It's a really, it's one of the two most common, if not the most common. ADHD um, is also very common. Um, and we also know that most mental health conditions start before age 25 and about half have started to develop by age 15, if not already presented. So um, there's a really strong importance of us intervening early before unhelpful coping mechanisms start to set up in people and get established. We also know that um, about a seventh of young people have had a mental health condition in the last 12 months as well. The other thing is that often conditions are comorbid. So about a third of young people had two or more mental health conditions in the last 12 months. So, yeah, we're looking at high prevalence amongst young people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that we should be waiting and seeing if it goes away. I think if ideally we really want to be intervening as early as possible because then we get the best outcomes and the young person experiences less distress and has less interference as well. Sarah told us that the actual prevalence of anxiety disorders in children and adolescents in Australia is 7 to 20%, depending on the research that you look at. And the interesting thing is the lifetime prevalence is 15 to 20%. So it can really be chronic and hang around and be quite debilitating too. So for young people between 16 and 24 years, we know that it's estimated one in five young women will experience an anxiety disorder and one in 10 young men. So has the pandemic increased anxiety in adolescence? Our panel said definitely yes. Oh, I think it's hugely impacted the the prevalence, which may be reflecting um, what our, our community is saying, that um, it really does seem to be everywhere. There are some lucky people who are, are feeling a little bit better because they've done anxiety and they've got skills and they've had treatment. So so there are a small proportion that, that have got it, but um, by far the, it's a, it, feels, it feels very prevalent at the moment. COVID is certainly to blame, I think. So, Karen, you're in Sydney, but Kay's in Melbourne. Kay, <laughs> what's happening yeah. in your practice? Because mm. certainly in Victoria, uh, presentation and actually, you know, the number of people trying to, to adolescents seeking um, mental health services is hugely increased. So, Sarah, what do typical adolescent anxiety disorders look like? 
Mm, that's a really good question. So they're often chronic, I guess, chronic in the sense that they can be quite episodic um, and they can often be um, relapsing as well. And I think this really points to the importance of the um, of us as health professionals treating them and intervening until a person has ideally no symptoms to really lower that relapse risk. We want people to get as skilled as possible in managing it so that they're not so prone to relapse. Um, they also interfere with a young person's typical development too. Um, and this is in lots of ways because a young person might not be going to school as often. They might be avoiding going to parties. They might be declining invitations so all those opportunities to connect with peers and socialize perhaps as they might ordinarily do can be interfered with and they can really disrupt family functioning as well they can have a big effect on family members um, with parents needing to take time off work perhaps or um, yeah just affecting the family being able to go and do the things they'd like to be all doing mm. The other thing is they're often not noticed, um, not picked up on by perhaps teachers or um, parents um, and they're often unreported. Often people don't realise they have anxiety. They might think, I've just always been a worrier. All my family are like this. Isn't this just normal? Doesn't everyone think like this? Um, and often people don't present with those initial symptoms. It's often in a more acute phases when people are really feeling quite, um, yeah, it's really debilitating that they might present. Mm. Or after their anxieties led to depression or after they've mm. developed their eating disorder. It seems there are many risk factors for the development of anxiety and anxiety disorders in adolescence. Biological factors, issues related to the family environment, cultural factors and things related to stressful life events. Often it's a mixture of these. Well what jumps out at me and I think what I've dealt with in a number of cases is where there's been um, really a history, a parental history, and when you've you know done the family history of anxious attachment and from early stages and where the child may have had a quite, an, the parent describes it as always being somewhat anxious. And then it's got to a certain point uh, where the, the adolescence, where they've just, it's affected their functioning at a level that's really brought it to be an issue. But then what you actually see is the system, the family system has a lot of anxiety in it anyway. So uh, in those situations, it's really working with the you know, presenting person, the, the adolescent, but also with the parent is important. The 2019 Mission Australia survey of more than 25,000 young people around Australia revealed that young people's top three sources of worry are mental health, the environment and equity and discrimination. It will be interesting to see how that changes in the 2020 figures. You know, it's really tempting to get into a conversation about whether the media is driving these concerns that young people have. And I've certainly heard it brought up in conversations about young people and their concerns about the environment. Mm. But I don't think that that's relevant. I think what's relevant it is it is what they're worried about. Mm. And we need to be able to address that. Mm. That's right. That's what about right. their personal concerns? Yeah, so the personal concerns are interesting because they tend to be more stable from year to year in this survey and they're coping with stress. So this is people's people's personal concerns for, their, uh, for them. So coping with stress, which I think is very common with uh, young yeah. people at school, school or study problems, whether they're social problems or workload or worrying about um, failing or whatever it might be, 
and mental health as well. So that um, featured both in their national key issues and in their personal issues. And so those three were really consistent. If we get let these young people continue to be anxious and worry, I imagine there are some consequences of that. There is an unfortunate pathway, yeah. So uh, these anxiety disorders um, left untreated are really a uh, high-risk factor for mental health conditions in adult years. And I think we know that anxiety often tips into depression if people don't learn the skills to problem-solve and uh, reframe unhelpful thoughts. So um, teenage anxiety and depression doubles or triples the risk for uh, these in adult years, which is really concerning. So the more we can do um, with adolescents, the, the better. And interestingly, young people who had social phobia at age 15 had six times the risk for substance abuse disorder, or substance use disorder, I should say, um, as adults. So, And I think that makes a lot of sense too. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot we can prevent um, in future years if we can teach really good skills, empower young people with really good skills to manage these conditions well and effectively. And just while I jump on my soapbox for a minute, excuse me, because yeah. what I want to say is that we need to teach them the skills before they get unwell, mm. when we identify mm. them as vulnerable to mental health conditions mm. and before it mm. takes hold of their lives. I'd love to see more universal programs targeting anxiety and targeting res- resilience building Mm -hmm. There are certainly a number of those online um, that as practitioners, particularly as general practitioners, we can encourage uh, young people to participate in. And certainly in schools, I remember a story that one of my colleagues told me, she teaches in a medical faculty and one of her students said that if she hadn't been forced to do the mood gym program in year 11 at school, she didn't think she would have got through medicine. So, so mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a very telling story. She mm-hmm. got some skills out of that that stood her in good stead right mm-hmm. through her university career. It seems that in practice, far and away, the most common anxiety disorders in adolescence that we see are generalised anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder. Let's listen as Sarah introduces us to one of her patients. So Ginevra is 16. She lives with her mum and grandma in a small coastal town. She's been having trouble going to school for about two years and her attendance over the last two years has been at about 40 to 60%. But then this year since COVID hit, it's really dropped to about 20% at the moment. She's unfortunately had a fallout with her best friend. Her best friend's sick of Ginevra not returning her messages um, and has given up on her because she's not coming places and not doing things with her. Ginevra's really concerned about climate change. It's a really um, yeah, keen passion of hers but something that causes her a lot of distress too. And she's worried about COVID. Her mum's lost her job um, due to COVID and her grandma who lives with them, she's really yeah, intent on shielding and protecting. So she's been very careful with her own health and behaviour. Ginevra's not sleeping well and hasn't really for the last couple of years. She is pretty socially withdrawn um, since she stopped talking to her best friend a month ago. The little trio that they had have stopped interacting with her as well, so she hasn't had any contact with them. And in year nine she was bullied. She was a little bit 
active environmentally at school and um yeah she was teased a bit about that by some of her peers so that was that was difficult for her Karen tell me what your impression of Geneva is Geneva gives me the the sense that she's she's sweet and vulnerable she sounds like she's got lots of things on her mind um, and she sounds like she's experiencing that in her body um, and having quite a lot of symptoms as well, particularly the sleep um, makes me alert to the fact that she's got some physiological symptoms as well. So I'm, I'm delighted that she's come in to see me and um, I'm really wanting to, to look out for her and, and to do a full and proper assessment and try and get her some help as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. What about you, Kay? Have you got anything to add to that? Uh, the school refusal would put my antenna up um, and and what's the, you know, how is school refusal potentially related to the family situation? Is there some separation anxiety there? What's the situation? Dad's not mentioned, mum and gran living in a small coastal town. So drilling into some of those factors, looking at the recent fallout with best friend. So what's her relationships been like previous to her presentation and how significant was the fallout? Socially, you know, withdrawing obviously is a, once again, my antenna would go up and perhaps with a little bit of depression as well there. Um, and bullet in year nine for naive environmentalism, idealism, a kind of sense of um, almost a bit of social you know, uh, phobia that in the sense of maybe feeling that she's going to be negative evalu- negatively evaluated by her peers if she doesn't have a complete understanding about environmental idealism, which I've spoken to some kids in my, in my practice who've said, I don't like to actually talk because I don't know enough about it. They get the little snippets, mm-hmm. but they feel like they can't make a contribution. And in some cases, they're judged and evaluated for that. So there's a lot in that for an assessment. Yeah. What do we need to consider here, Sarah, when we're thinking about Geneva? Yeah, I think um, we need to be looking at what the level of severity is, how it's impacting her um, and the level of severity in those important areas of her social life, her home life and her school life. Um, We need to think about what's triggering the anxiety and most importantly, really come to some understanding of the factors that are maintaining the anxiety and help Ginevra understand that too, what's what's keeping it going. What's I always say to the kids, what's the petrol for it? What's the fuel for your anxiety? Because that's where we need to be um, addressing and doing things differently. I think, too, we want to be, if with Ginevra's consent, um, getting some information from Gran, getting some information from Mum, from teachers if possible, because that gives us a really rich picture and helps us understand that presentation more and intervene more effectively. Do we need to rule out physical causes of anxiety in someone like Ginevra? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we do have a lot of clues from, from the psychosocial situation and I'd be wanting to explore some other domains as well before I, I narrowed it down. So I've certainly um, you know, got a sense that there's, there's mental health issues there, but it's really important to have a very thorough medical history, find whether there's any um, pre-existing conditions or any uh, family history of things that might con- 
uh, contribute to her presentation. And of course, we want to do a physical examination, um, just a limited one probably with, with Ginevra at this sense and, and certainly making her feel comfortable. But it is always important with a first presentation to arrange some blood tests to exclude low iron and thyroid diseases, particularly for, for young women, iron deficiency mm. can contribute to, to symptoms and there, there may be other things that we're missing. So very Make important. Make a nutritional assessment, for Absolutely, example. Absolutely, yeah. That's part of the risk of people presenting to mental health practitioners without a GP being involved that sometimes physical causes get overlooked and they can mm. be important. So Sarah, where do we go from here? I always ask young people, in a nutshell, what are the top three things going on for you? Because I think even if there are 17 things going on, it often can be drilled down to three and we can then start working with one of those, which will often have ripple effects on the other two because they're often a little bit interconnected. We often talk when we're dealing with adolescents about making an assessment across mm. all the domains because yeah. adolescent behaviour can be a bit out there sometimes and they can look depressed at school but function normally at home and in social environments or another different configuration of that. But it's about severity, isn't it? If the anxiety is impact, mm. impacting all the domains of their life, then you're looking at something that's quite severe. That's right. A life story we need to get? Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I'll often get that and I'll, as I get the life story, I'll fill out the four Ps, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, getting information from the young person as well as uh, the other important people around them. Um, and focusing on clinical observations, which I think can be a little bit limited at the moment. I know I'm missing um, noticing things like the finger strumming or the foot tapping mm -hmm. that normally I'd pick up on in person. Mm -hmm. And with telehealth, that's a little bit trickier. Sarah went on to talk about assessment aids in the form of a semi-structured diagnostic interview, like the anxiety disorders interview for children and adolescents, which is suitable for young people aged 7 to 17 and freely available online, but possibly not suitable for general practice. Along with the child behaviour rating scale, which may be useful in some situations. Self-report questionnaires are probably more efficient and for Ginevra, suitable instruments might include the 47-item Revised Child Anxiety and Depression Scale, known as ARCADS, which is a comprehensive questionnaire that can be completed and scored online before the consultation or maybe even the DAS. Karen, what are you using at Headspace as far as self-report scales are concerned? Uh, we, we don't have a particular one to use. The, the um, assessment that gets done online before the young people come in does contain the K10, and I must say that um, being a time-pressed GP, that's the one that I use. It's short and sweet. I know some of my colleagues use the DAS, but I'm, I'm just thinking about the ARCADs, and these days I do often email patients thing, and it might be something nice to be able to email and, and have mm. them return to, to look at next appointments. Can I just say one thing mm -hmm. with that with uh, what you're saying about it, it's useful to do prior, mm. I've done it on numbers of occasions in with the person there and the amount of information I've got, the extra information mm -hmm. from putting that forward has been quite significant. Let's get back to Geneva and talk about what else you know about it, Sarah. Yeah, so Geneva had been seeing the school counsellor at school but it was getting a bit awkward because she was fronting up the school so rarely that she was missing a lot of the planned appointments. So um, she engages with you, which was the recommendation of the school counsellor, and does this fortnightly. And a pretty good relationship is set up. 
um, she has had about four sessions with you. And at the start of her fourth telehealth session, her mum just asked if she could speak with you um, at the start before Ginevra comes in. And she lets you know that when Ginevra was lying on the couch um, asleep, she noticed that Ginevra had some scars on her arm as well as some what looked like fresh, deep cuts on her arm. And she'd been wearing long sleeves a lot of the time, so her mum hadn't noticed these. She also um, said she found some marijuana in Ginevra's bedroom and also a pencil case full of razor blades. So she was. She said she didn't get cross. She stayed concerned um, and tried to stay calm, but she said she didn't feel very calm, but she wanted to let you know. And Ginevra hadn't let you know this information. So you um, let mum know that you're happy for mum to share that, but you do want to let Ginevra know that, um, that that's been shared too so you can talk with her about it. So the question of suicidality comes up, doesn't it, when you start Mm. thinking about this? I worked with a young girl for about three years from year nine to year 12. I worked as a school counsellor for many years and I'd worked with her purely on anxiety and her mood had seemed really good, just extremely anxious. And just before we wound up and I did a handover to an external psychologist at the end of year 12, um, I asked her about suicide risk and she smiled at me and she said, you know, you've never asked me that. And I said, oh, look, I probably haven't, but I'm being extra thorough today because we're finishing up. And she said, I think about it every week. And I was really flawed and it really taught me not to assume that just because I'm not getting any signals of depressed mood Mm. that um, suicide risk isn't there. What specific interventions are there for her anxiety, Sarah? You're not going to tell me that CBT is the gold standard, (laughs) are you? That little gold flag there says it, doesn't it? <laughs> CBT it is. That's yeah, that's the, the best one for us to be using with Ginevra. So, so we have a long list of components, core components of CBT that we need to use, don't we, in mm-hmm. um, this context with adolescent anxiety. Is there anything that is more important than anything else? I mean, do we start at the top of our list and work our way down? Is that how we do it? What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, so I think not necessarily, not necessarily. Psychoeducation, I think, is always a helpful starting point to give some understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to begin with the personal stress signature and mm-hmm. get people to really recognize what their early warning signs are of stress and also their more acute warning signs and really get them to start noticing them and thinking about what they can do that's effective to manage it in the early stages. So I find that really useful part of psychoeducation but also part of intervention. Um, Probably the other two key or three key areas that I'll focus on if I don't have a lot of time Um, would be the cognitive strategies, really teaching people to challenge unhelpful thoughts and reframe, Um, but also the structured problem solving because I find a lot of young people haven't been taught that skill. It's an easy skill to learn um, and it can make such a difference for avoidance. So usually the things I'm targeting are the what-if thoughts and the avoidance and procrastination that appear in lots of different ways across those three domains. I think a lot of GPs are capable of doing many of these things with a little bit of training. And sometimes for GPs who don't have easy access to a psychologist or an allied Mm. mental health professional, it's really important that they're able to do it. And e-mental health resources are actually good at supporting GPs in uh, following many of those paths. 
So I talk from the start with the young person about we need to fill your wellbeing cup and get a wellbeing plan set up that you can use until you're 90. I say this isn't just for now, this is to use right throughout your life. And every piece of homework I do with a young person is working towards honing skills for this wellbeing plan and honing understanding. So we'll fill it out as we go and at the end we've got this lovely document. Um, and they might put it on their phone or they might put it on a piece of paper, I, whatever suits them I work with. So um, the main things I'm really looking at it are their early warning signs, um, being aware of what they are, their early stress signals, their, more, their later stress signals with anxiety too, those more acute, sharper signs, as well as what their triggers are, being aware of um, what they know it can be triggered. So it might be when I'm overloaded with homework or when there's conflict in the family or with a friend, that that's a really high trigger for them. So being aware of that um, and then having some coping strategies, things that work for them that they can put in there. Um, so that might be exercise. It might be, um, yeah, it might be patterns for sleep. It might be some relaxation tools. It might be doing some cognitive challenging, whatever it might, um, whatever might work for them. Looking at support people too, um, and what to do in an emergency as well. So, stepwise for Ginevra, we're going to do a formulation first, aren't we, Sarah? We are, we are, and I think this is really nicely done collaboratively with the young person. Um, and I'll often, as I said before, as I'm filling out the life story with them, I'll get get this out and I'll share it with them. And I'll show them what we're filling in together and where they think it fits, whether it's precipitating factors, perpetuating factors. And I explain to them the importance of the perpetuating factors, that that's where we really need to target our interventions to get some change happening. Um, in terms of uh, intervention, I'll always start with safety, of course, um, making sure the young person's safe and then really asking the young person, Geneva in this case, what her biggest concern is and where she would like to start working to get that engagement in. Mm. If appropriate and if possible, I will involve carers. That might just be 10 minutes at the end of a session or it might be um, a phone call. That would be with Geneva's consent. But um, I find it really useful to have the parent or carer on board so that they're able to um, help generalise the strategies, not just from so that they're not just happening in the young person's life, but they're reminding them and prompting them, and perhaps even working on their own stuff too. Um, <laughs> that can be really helpful as well. Um, I let the young person know that I give home activities, and I say that our sessions are a pit stop. The real work happens with their um, skills practice with the home activities in between sessions. That's where the real change happens. I always talk about targeting the petrol for anxiety, um, targeting that what if thinking and the avoidance and being aware of when that's occurring too um, because I think that's really useful. So that might be from using some graded exposure um, in session or in the um, in between sessions, the problem solving and the cognitive strategies. And wherever possible, Jan, I will weave in from the start some e-mental health resources because I think they can really consolidate the work we're doing. They can make our work faster and more effective. And then if their e-mental health resources are woven in at the start and introduced to the young person, um, by the end of the sessions they can continue using them of their own accord if they wish to or pick them up at any point in life. 
When you say that, I'm, I think immediately apps for symptom management. For mm-hmm. example, um, Reach Out's Breathe app, which has got slow mm-hmm. breathing exercises on it, or or um, Smiling Mind, which has those wonderful suites of mm-hmm. um, mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think everybody's got their favourites, but they're mm-hmm. the things that are easy, particularly with adolescents, to mm-hmm. weave in uh, to therapy mm-hmm. and augment the therapy. I, I really like Insight Timer, which has got some great podcasts and um, ways to help switch your mind off when you're trying to fall asleep and Mind Shift, which is a great one. But I think it, it doesn't matter which ones you choose so long as you've got a couple really good ones. I've got a little folder on my phone that I keep my favourite ones and I'll show the young person the ones that I'm talking about, help them to download it in the appointment and we might even look at the first page and help them register so that I know that they know exactly what we're talking about and they've got a, a really a good connection between my appointment and and the yeah, the um, consistency of, of doing it t- until I see them again. Then um, I guess what we're doing is we're monitoring Geneva's progress and really, if possible, and this is probably a bit ideal world, but treating them until there are no symptoms to ensure we don't have relapse. Thinking about medication um, and if I guess if things are very, it's certainly not first line, but if things are very severe and there's no change and it's very debilitating, um, that can be, yeah, appropriate. If someone won't engage in face-to-face therapy at all or telehealth sessions, there is always online therapy, is there not, Sarah? And that's quite a lot of young people. Yeah, there certainly is. And the research evidence for it is really strong too, which I think is very heartening. Um, We know about three quarters of young people with um, clinical symptoms don't seek professional help, which is really concerning. Um, but a lot of them will be open and are open, the research says as well, and anecdotally as well, I find, um, to looking at things online. And that can be particularly the case if they're perhaps not ready to talk yet, um, but ready to get some information and be exposed to some ideas and try some things out just by themselves. We talked about ways to find online resources that might be useful, starting with the federal government's Head to Health website. That's www.headtohealth.gov.au, which leads to all the Australian evidence-based digital mental health resources that are available. Special mention was made of the University of Queensland's BRAVE program, which would be ideal for Geneva. That program has three options, a section for three to seven-year-olds, one for eight to 13-year-olds, and one for older adolescents. Parents can get involved too. The BRAVE program aims to help users understand and manage their anxiety and can be easily incorporated into face-to-face care. Other programs that might be relevant here include Teen Strong, a specially devised CBT program from This Way Up, the Mood Mechanic program from the MindSpot Virtual Clinic, and teen-friendly websites such as Reach Out, which has a special section for parents and health professionals, eHeadspace, and Youth Beyond Blue. Another special mention should go to programs that might help prevent mental health problems in this age group. These are especially designed to promote resilience in young people, and they include Mood Gym, Australia's oldest online CBT program and the mental fitness program that you can find on Black Dog Institute's Bite Back website. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can also find a whole lot of culturally appropriate digital resources, including resources for young people, on the new WellMob portal. That's 
www.wellmob.org.au. Wellmob will in fact be featured on our next MPRAC webinar and podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.